Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. It has been 22 years since that courageous, adventurous, and yet sometimes clueless space ranger Buzz Lightyear spoke that catchphrase that has been repeated in our culture ever since. It's been used in everything from toys to t-shirts to a Beyonce song. It's been used by even philosophers and mathematical theorists. You know the phrase, say it with me now, to infinity and beyond. beyond. (laughs) 1995 was when Toy Story came out. It was a time when the old childhood fascination with space really wasn't what it had been, say, in the 60s. Or even what it is today. Uh, In the 90s, people were just kind of grungy. And not so interested in space travel, though some always have been, but it it wasn't really on the national scene. But fascination with interstellar travel is on the rise again. And I don't know if you've been noticing these things, but Voyager 1, Voyager 1, that 1977 launch space probe went interstellar in, I believe it was 2012, August of 2012. It actually left our solar system and now is gone farther than any uh, space probe sent out from planet Earth has ever gone. It is now hurtling through the skies at 38,000 kilometers an hour, just racing around. For, For 40 years, it slingshotted around our solar system. It would be caught in the gravitational pull of a planet and fling around the planet and shoot out somewhere else. And and pictures from Voyager 1 are still uh, used in textbooks for school kids today. Pictures that have been sent back of Jupiter and Saturn. It was the first probe to get that far. But, you know, it got out there. And I think a lot of people who didn't work at NASA weren't really thinking about Voyager 1. But this is a big deal now that it's left the solar system. This week saw the successful uh, test launch of Elon Musk's reusable SpaceX rocket. Maybe you read about that. The idea is there will be millions of dollars saved if you can use a rocket, take off, land the rocket, and then use it again. Well, they've, they've done that now. Virgin Galactic, though it's had a rather checkered past, has promised a crewed space flight by next year. That they're going to actually launch people into space. I don't want to be on that myself. I'm very happy here. President Trump wants to go to Mars, and some Democrats want him to go to Mars. <laughs> to infinity and beyond. Looking beyond the stars. Trying to reach beyond the heavens. And yet Psalm 90 
Verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And of Jesus it was prophesied, His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity, Micah 5.2. Our God is far beyond infinity. Our God, our Lord Jesus, has gone far more than interstellar. He created stellar. He is stellar. And as we open up this letter written by Paul to the church at Ephesus, really through the church at Ephesus, which I'll explain in a moment, we launch into what many believe to be the highest of the heights of all the letters of Paul. That if there is one letter that reaches further than any of the rest, theologically, Christologically, personally, in all manner, it's this letter. It is huge. The reason why we're going to cover six verses tonight is i got a lot of study to do. I mean, just to get as far as we are going to get, there is so much in this single letter. The six-chapter letter literally takes us right up into the heavenlies. The heavenlies. That's a, a phrase to get used to. Your Bible might say, as I read, the heavenly places. Places is added. The word is simply the heavenlies. It's the eporanios. And it is a a word that is only used by Paul with the exception of one time by Jesus. The eporanios. Jesus said, John 3.12, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you the heavenlies? How will you believe if I tell you what is to infinity and beyond? The Lord Jesus said, And now the only other one to use this phrase, this word, the heavenlies, is the Apostle Paul. This is a heavenly letter. You could say to Ephesus and beyond. And what makes it so striking is that while Paul's letter to Colossae lifts up Christ, Ephesians shows us the church lifted up by and in Christ. So he takes it now to the next logical step. If Christ Jesus be lifted up, and he is, what he does is move in and through the church and lift us up and literally seat us in the heavenlies. It's a vision of heaven par excellence as Paul works through this this theological teaching, this, this doctrinally wonderful teaching. Samuel Taylor Coleridge called it the divinest composition of man. I would agree that it's the divinest composition. I would not agree that it is of man. For this is clearly spoke by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit authored through the mouth of Paul, written by Tychicus, while the Apostle Paul was ironically very tied down. A heavenly letter by a man tied down. He is uh, still, as of this writing, under house arrest in Rome. You know Paul had a prison ministry. He ministered from prison. And we've been seeing this in Philemon, in Colossians, now in Ephesians, and finally in Philippians. Paul spoke these letters, dictated these letters, and sent them off from his incarceration there in Rome. Don't forget that as we're in these prison epistles. It's still circa 62 AD. And the gospel had an interesting launch pad. You know, we launched rockets from Cape Canaveral. Well, Paul is launching these letters from prison. From, again, incarceration. So he's not even the one able to deliver these letters, able to then explain these letters. Can you imagine? 
and be like me writing up notes for a Bible study and sending it off with Jake. What hope? (laughs) Paul would send it by Tychicus. Tychicus already took the letter to Colossae, you may recall. He's been to Colossae and back. And now he's saddled with another letter. Now he's got to head back to Asia and go to Ephesus to bring this letter as well. In fact, Tychicus traveled all over Asia for Paul and for the Gospel and for Jesus. I like Tychicus. There's something about him that just breathes faithful. Companion. Servant. Ephesians 6.21, at the end of the chapter, we find out, Paul says that you may also know about my circumstances, how I'm doing. Tychicus, my beloved brother, and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. So that means he's going to inform them about Paul and what's happening there in Rome. It also means, I believe, that Tychicus is going to explain some of this. So this guy's got to be learned under the teaching, the tutelage, if you will, of Paul. Tychicus brings the letter, and they read things and say... Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, what does that mean? And Tychicus could then say, well, let me explain. So this man was very important. You know, thinking about Tychicus, you and I may never write theological treatises like Paul. But can we, can we carry them? We may never pen a gospel or, or write some great doctrinal thesis of the nature and person of Jesus Christ. But can we tell people? Can we, like Tychicus, just be messengers? There is so much power in the message. I was going over this with our staff earlier this morning that every letter of Paul's, you know this, it ends with several people who are named. That there's Paul the person, and then there's Paul the ministry. And Paul the ministry is much bigger than Paul the person. Paul the person could not carry out all the things that had to be carried out in the first century. And yet you had Tychicus, and you had Aristarchus, you you had Justice, Timothy, Dr. Luke, you have all these people. And they're all involved in the carrying out of the gospel. And without them, would we have the gospel? Would we have the letters? Without us, will people hear about Jesus? Can we just bear the letter like Tychicus did? Faithful messengers. Ephesians was written, and most scholars would agree, meant to be circulated. One of the real distinct uh, differences of this letter from some of the other, other letters of Paul is there's very little that's personal in it. I mean, it's, it's personal to you, personal to me. It's personally written from the Spirit to the people of God. But Paul doesn't really address Ephesian issues. He doesn't deal with this problem or that problem or their interactions with him. There, there's a little of that, but it's, it's one of the most generic of the letters in terms of a local church. Save Hebrews, it's more of just doctrine, teaching, explanation of Paul. It, it focuses, as with the Hubble telescope, it focuses more on the heavenly reality of the church than anything else Paul writes. Where the church is right now. Where the church will be then. Our heavenly reality. And the letter is, for all of that, still classic Paul. He had a very definite way of writing his letters. He had two aspects of every letter. Doctrine and application. 
He always starts his letters with doctrine. He'll go several chapters of doctrine, teaching. And then he takes that doctrine and he doesn't just leave you hanging. Well, what do we do with this, Paul? Application. He then shows you how it works. And so that's the easiest outline for Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3 is doctrine. Chapters 4 through 6, application. That's the easy outline. If you want to break it down a little further than that, I would do it like this. Three parts to this six-chapter letter. Chapters 1 through 3 I would call the heights of the heavenlies. The heights of the heavenlies. For Paul takes us up. And we realize our very heavenly position, though we even be grounded on earth today. The heights of the heavenlies. Chapters 4 and 5 then, the walk of the worthy. From the heights of the heavenlies to the walk of the worthy. And then finally in chapter 6, the fight of the faithful. Heights of the heavenlies, walk of the worthy, fight of the faithful. And I like that pattern because it speaks truly of our Christian life. It's kind of the pattern that we've seen many times before. In the scriptures, in our personal lives. Think about this. We tend to begin in the heights of the heavenlies. There is that divine heavenly moment when you realize who Jesus is. When you see that He is God. When the heavens open up, the angels sing, and you say, Yes, Lord. And and, and it's exciting. And most of us can think back to some point or another where we sense that, that heavenly reality of who Jesus is. God always begins that way. Gives us this kind of immediate heavenly download, even if it's just enough for me to say, Yes, Lord. It's a heavenly moment. And then the Lord advises us to the walk of the worthy. We start to get back to life and and, and back to the day-to-day and living out that, that heavenly vision, that wonderful realization. Now it's about, okay, what do I do at work tomorrow? How do I carry carry this to family and friends? What do I do around the dinner table when, when the family's just being annoying? You know, how do I work this out practically? The walk of the worthy. And I find that it's unusual for a young Christian to be thrown right into the battle. You know, usually we have the vision, and then we have the walk and training, and then comes the fight. The fight of the faithful. Isaiah describes it this way, Isaiah 40, 31, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. That's the height of the heavenlies, isn't it? And they will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So you go from the heights to every day. And ultimately, you go to the fight. you got to fight the fight. Paul says, fight the good fight. Get into the fray. Be willing to fight the battle. Well, you don't send someone into battle who at least hasn't been to basic training. Who at least hasn't been prepared for it. Shown how to shoot the weapon. Shown how to move in the army together. So the training is important, but the fight must come. And so that tends to be the pattern we see. That heavenly vision that that readies us for the run, for the walk, for the good fight. And I believe that's the reason for this letter. It's also the reason for its wider circulation than simply to one church. Paul is realizing that the church proper needs to understand. Oh, we have a glorious position in the heights of the heavens. That's our reality. But we've got to walk that out. You know, we come to Christ and we may yet have 40, 50, 70 years of life after that. Where we have to walk. 
And along that walk, the battles will come. And so this letter prepares for all of that. Verse 1, let's look at it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. How do you know? Heavenly vision. That's how Paul started. A heavenly vision of Christ Jesus. It was so absolute, so real, that Paul never looked back. That he would continue from that point forward the rest of his life following Jesus, preaching the gospel. That wonderful heavenly vision. You read about it in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, he repeats it. And then again in Acts chapter 26, he repeats it again. First time we see it just described by Luke. Second time he's defending himself. Third time he's standing in the amphitheater in Caesarea Maritima with his hands in, in shackles. Defending himself again by telling his story, I began with a heavenly vision. And his apostleship, by the will of God, was something that he would declare more than once. Remind the churches as well as he reminded himself, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In other words, what you're about to receive, it's not from me. I am passing along to you what was given to me. I am sharing with you what Christ himself trained up in me. And Paul knows that once you see Jesus, you know. Once He calls you, there's no more denying Him. You know. Oh, you might rebel. I have. But once you have believed in Him, there is something in you that knows you've been called by the will of God to Christ Jesus. And I'm talking about, yes, the eyes of faith. The faith that that conveys intellectual assurance. That you can know that you know. A spiritual assurance. Again, you know that you know. Emotional assurance. That I can have peace and comfort in knowing I have been called by Jesus. You know how many times I've had the conversation with Christians? I'm not sure if I know. I had that conversation this week. In fact, I'll share a little bit more about it later, confidentially. But I had a conversation with a believer who just was questioning the knowing. And I began to question this believer. And every answer that was given betrayed the fact that they actually do know, did know, they were saved. It's just, you know, it's just the enemy that accuses you and tries to undermine and tries to make you think you don't know. But you know. You know. Sometimes we say we don't know because God's been quiet for a long time. Some people say I don't know because I've never heard God speak. Well, the Bible tells us that He speaks to His own. He does. Well, I've never heard Him. Well, have you ever been in a passage of Scripture and just felt the presence of God? Well, yeah. I've been. Okay, then you've heard Him. Just because His voice hasn't boomed out through a Bose sound system doesn't mean you haven't heard from God. You ever been with another believer and the two of you are praying and they pray something and you go, that's exactly what I needed to hear. You've heard from God. He's not playing games, but He's going to do what He needs to do in your life to develop faith the way He knows you will develop faith best. Some people need the booming voice. Some Muslims in the Middle East need visions of Jesus. And this is something that keeps coming back across the wires to us, that Muslims all over the place are seeing Jesus and getting saved. Well, I've never seen Jesus. That hardly seems fair to me. (laughs) 
I'd like to see him. Why don't you show up in my office, you know? God is giving me exactly what I need to develop faith because He knows how I work. He knows how I function. And there are some who will never hear the booming voice as such. And God is saying, but I'm talking to you. I am talking to you all the while. Let me encourage you, if you're one of those who've never heard God speak, first of all, you need to reevaluate. And secondly, go to His Word. Just go to the Word. I've said many times, the more we are in the Word, the more our ears are attuned to His voice. The more we begin to recognize that subtle impressions that are doctrinally sound truly are the Lord speaking to us. Now, I happen to be one that does believe, I do believe that God does audibly speak at times. I've experienced that. I don't say that to be holy because it had nothing to do with me. But I also know that sometimes God is just very silent. I've told you before, I can count on one hand the number of times I think that I've heard God speak. And notice I just said, I think. Because even the most absolute definite time that I know that I know He spoke to me, even then, within seconds, I was going, was that God? Was that you? Or was that just me talking to myself? Am I losing it? All that to say, Paul knew. And I believe when you have given your heart to Jesus, you know. So maybe sometimes we just need to stop and trust that. I want to tell you what this person said, but I'll I'll tell you later. That, That betrayed the fact that yes, this person has walked with Jesus all their life. Paul knew. Peter said in 1 Peter 1 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Can you say tonight, I love Jesus? If you can say, I love Jesus, guess what? You're saved. You're good. You wouldn't say it. You wouldn't feel it. You wouldn't know it if you hadn't given your heart to Him. Peter says, you have not seen Him. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I didn't see Jesus here tonight, but I knew He was here tonight. And I know He's here tonight. But as we worshipped, I knew He was here. I didn't see Him. He didn't brush up against me in the seat and go, Scoot over, Rick. You're hogging all the aisle. But I knew He was here. Joy inexpressible, full of glory. It is faith that begins the heavenly experience. It is faith that brings us heavenly certainty. John 20, 29, Jesus said, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. And so if you have never seen Jesus, oh, you are blessed. You're blessed to know Him by simple faith. Paul says, To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's standard greeting, grace and peace. We've looked at it before. It's both Gentile and Jewish. Grace, the Gentile greeting, charis. And peace, the Jewish greeting, shalom. And Paul will use it in nearly every letter. And it is a greeting to Ephesus and yet not to Ephesus. Three early Greek manuscripts actually omit at Ephesus 
in verse 2. It just reads, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, does that mean it didn't go to Ephesus? No, I think it went to Ephesus. But there are a couple of old manuscripts that it seemed to be lacking. And there's not a space there as if someone scratched it out or anything. Now, most of the old manuscripts do have that Ephesus in there. And I believe, just based on what I've studied, that yeah, it was sent to Ephesus. That was the original destination of the letter. The weight of the evidence is there that this letter was carried by Tychicus to Ephesus. However, if you read through it, you discover that Paul, who loved this fellowship, Paul, who, man, this is the fellowship. He met up with the elders at Miletus right before he returned to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. He didn't even go to Ephesus. He he skipped it because he knew if he went there, he'd never want to leave. And so he sailed past it down to Miletus, which was down the Aegean coast, and sent word to the elders to meet him there. They met him there, and they wept over Paul. And he wept with them. He loved this church. He loved this fellowship. And yet, we don't see hardly any personal comments to them. We don't see him name people from Ephesus. We don't see him talking directly about situations going on in Ephesus. He doesn't deal with the church at Ephesus hardly at all. He deals with the church. The church universal. And it's interesting that this letter would be written this way. It's nothing like Corinthians. I mean, Paul loved Corinth and he got hopping mad at Corinth and he accused Corinth and he rebuked Corinth and he comforted Corinth. And and you see this dynamic of relationship. It's unmistakable. Galatians. Though that was written to a number of churches, all there in Galatia, it's personal. Paul's getting to them and going at it. Colossians, talking with the people at Colossae and interacting with them in the letter. You're not going to see that in Ephesians. And yet again, Ephesus is Paul's Cape Canaveral. The launching pad for this letter. He writes it, sends it by Tychicus. It gets to Ephesus, I'm sure was read there in the assembly and read again and again, perhaps even copied down, but then sent out. And off it would go throughout Asia Minor. Why? Well, first of all, Ephesus was the capital city of Asia Minor, Turkey today. On the Aegean coast, uh, perched there, centered on a major east-west trade route, It was the big city in Asia. Even as the Romans had control of it, it was the the place to be. The largest city. It rested on the Caister River. And Ephesus as a location actually began to be settled about 1100 years before Christ by the Athenians. They came in. Around 133 B.C., Rome came along and, and took control of it and occupied the region. And within a hundred years of that, now by, by the first century, by the writing of this letter, Ephesus had become one of the wealthiest cities in all the Roman world. This was opulence. The governor of all Asia resided and ruled from Ephesus. And so it was on the map as far as Rome was concerned, as far as the world was concerned. Population of Ephesus, 500,000. A big city back in those days. It also had a large Jewish population, as Paul discovered when he first came into Ephesus. So, 
Ephesus as a region, as a city, was opulent, it was prosperous, influential, and very pagan. And also very Jewish, at least in some element. So there was a lot of religion running around there in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19 tells us much about Ephesus and Paul's experience there. 19 verse 35 reveals that there was an ancient belief, and we find this in other works of history as well, that an an idol of Artemis, Diana, fell from the sky and landed on the ground to become Dirty Diana. It's an old Michael Jackson song, sorry. It's just what my brain does. An idol fell from the sky, and because the idol fell from the sky and landed on the ground, we need to build a temple. And so they started building the temple of Artemis, or Diana. It took them 220 years to finish this temple. Huge, massive temple there in Ephesus. Massive amphitheater there. Paul came to Ephesus on his second missionary journey. He came into the town and he began to dialogue with the Jews. We're told in Acts chapter 18, verses 19 through 21, dialoguing with them, reasoning with them in the synagogues. And they were intrigued at what this clearly wise and learned Jewish man had to say about Mashiach, the Messiah, the Anointed One. They told him, we want to hear more about this. But Paul was on his way out. This was the tail end of the second missionary journey. And so he stayed there about two months teaching in the synagogues, but then he left and he said, I'll come back. And so they planned for him to come back. He departs, returning on his third missionary journey, he began again in the synagogue and he stayed there teaching for three straight months. Three months in bridge time, in terms of teaching, might be, you know, limited to three months of Sundays and Wednesdays. So if you went every Sunday and every Wednesday, and then you threw in a small group Bible study, so if we went three times a week for three months, do the math, 12, uh, 24, 36, you might get 36 teachings. I can guarantee you three months with Paul was a whole lot more than 36 teachings. So he goes there and he's teaching three solid months in the synagogue. But opposition arose. As it always does, the further you bring out Jesus, the more you express Christ, the more the enemy gets uncomfortable and the opposition begins to rise. So he leaves the synagogue. He's not kicked out, but it was getting intense. He leaves the synagogue and he goes and he rents a hall from a guy named Tyrannus. I like to call him Rex. (laughs) Tyrannus was a philosopher. Uh, Other historical evidence tells us of a man, a philosopher named Tyrannus, who lived in Ephesus. He had a school of philosophy there, and Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10, tells us that Paul borrowed or rented, we don't know if he rented, but he used Tyrannus' school of philosophy. I told you when we studied Acts 19 that what they would do is they would study in these schools early in the morning when it was nice and cool, but then when it got oppressively hot as it could get in Asia Minor, they would take the afternoon off. And they would go home to their homes and they'd eat and they'd rest and sleep and just lounge until it cooled off a little more and they could pay more attention. And around 5 o'clock in the evening, they'd all pour back into the school for the training and the school would continue. So most of these schools, as the school of Tyrannus, would sit empty from, you know, 1 to 4, noon to 5, somewhere in there, afternoon, the hot hours. Paul's like, I don't care if it's hot, I'll teach. Anyone who wants to show up, I'm teaching, 1 to 5. So they'd be sweating it out 
listening to the teachings of Paul because they couldn't get enough. And we're told that from the school of Tyrannus, Paul taught another two years. Acts 19 verse 10 He taught, this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. People are coming from all over to Ephesus because they hear about this teacher Paul teaching in the heat of the day in the school of Tyrannus. And it's just so God. He just does the completely unexpected, the unconventional. He doesn't have to do it the way we do it. He doesn't have to wait for a cool evening to teach the word. The word holds up even in the heat of the day. Even in the heat of your life, when you're sweating it out, and there's too much going on, and, and it's, it's hot, and it's cumbersome. Those aren't the times that we need a break from the Word. Those are the times we need to be in the Word. Well, the Gospel took off like a rocket from Ephesus. Again, two straight years of systematic teaching through the Scriptures... And Paul then was there for another year after that. So for a full three years in Ephesus, on the launch pad, Paul taught the Word of God, unlike anywhere else he had been in his entire ministry. This city got more of Paul than anyone else. Thessalonica? (laughs) Ephesians, the Ephesians got three years. The Thessalonians got three, three weeks. Three weeks! Wait till we get to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and see what Paul taught them in three Sabbaths. But man, Ephesians, these people, they got it all. Again, as I told you, after the three years there, uh, Paul would go further on his journey. He would journey back to Jerusalem, skipping by Ephesus, meeting the elders in Miletus. And he told them when he met with them, Acts chapter 20, verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Implication, I taught you the Bible cover to cover. I taught you all of the Hebrew Scriptures and showed you how they pointed to Jesus. That is what he's saying. I read that and I think, how could he? We have been at this for 13 years. You know? And we're only as far as Ephesians. we still got a few more books to go. How could he cover it? Well, I had the answer before I even finished asking the question. We are so limited by agendas and attention span. Our agendas in this world, wow, our schedules, our busyness, it's no wonder it takes us a long time to get through the Word of God. We just don't have time for it. Our brilliant technology, which is supposed to free up our time, this is my technological rant for the evening, it has in, instead commandeered our time. It's taking control of our time. What was supposed to make life easier has made my life more difficult. And studies prove that our media and our devices and our technology has literally reduced our ability to concentrate. I read just today that pop music in the last 20 years has changed radically. They say 20 years ago it took anywhere from 26 seconds to a half a minute to get to the first verse of a song. Now the average pop song, the, the person's singing in seven seconds. That's a 78% speed up. And it's because record companies and artists and musicians are recognizing people are shutting off songs by the time they get to 30 seconds if they haven't heard anything. 
So we got to get singing right away. Don't bore us. Get to the chorus is what they think. And it, it is just another example of how we are so driven and we're so rushed and we're hurrying up. Talking earlier today with, with a, a few of, of my brothers and sisters and we were just saying, how marvelous would it be if we did Bible study and along about 8.30 took a break, brought in some pizza, you know, fellowship for 20 minutes or so, and then at 9 o'clock got back to it. And then around midnight, maybe we head home and crash, but I'll see you at 6 a.m. for more study before you go to work. I mean, we ha- I don't have time. I can't do it. It's just too much to ask. And Paul said this, Acts chapter 20, verse 31, again, still talking with the elders from Ephesus. Night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. When, Paul? Night and day. If I was talking to the elders at Ephesus, I would say, man, every Sunday and every Wednesday we were in the Word together. And in this culture, that's a lot. For Paul, it was night and day. God isn't into snap answers. He is not into instant relationships. Just add water and you're good to go. See, that's the problem that some churches get into with baptism. It's just add water and I'm fine. I say I believe, I get baptized, and I'm on my way. It's not a just-add-water proposition. It is a long, faithful relationship that God is looking for with each one of us. It's why we have a book this big. Because you can't get through it in five minutes. You can't spend a half an hour and say, Okay, got that down. Next. The Bible is not an app. The Bible takes a lifetime. And God intended that. And note that in verse 1 again, he calls to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful. Saints, hagias, holy ones, which is a title not given to those who have applied for it or who have died and their names have been brought up by the church to eventually acquire sainthood. No, it's you and it's me right now, the holy ones. Does it make sense to me? I don't think of myself as all that holy and yet that's what I'm called. That's who you are. Holy ones in Christ Jesus. Holy ones who are faithful in Jesus Christ. Sunday, um, and this is just, let me push this point a bit further. We had our exchange student, Aiko, with us. Aiko from Japan, 13-year-old, did not speak a lick of English. I think she knew good morning, which was in Japanese, isn't that Ohio? So I was having fun every night as she went down to bed. I'd say, Ohio! (laughs) It's good morning. She'd look at me. And I'd say, good morning? (laughs) Anyway, she didn't know any English. We had fun kind of trying to communicate. It was just a short week together. And then on Sunday morning, she's sitting right over here with Cheryl. And about halfway through the final teaching in the book of Colossians, she leans over to Cheryl and says, Who is Jesus? She had never heard of him. She had never heard of Jesus. She's a smart little girl. She's with a smart group of students, with a smart teacher who came from smart schools in a very smart country. Well educated. Who is Jesus? I don't know if if those of you who are here during second service, Cheryl walked up to me. This was when I went down and my wife came up for prayer. I'm like, "Uh oh, what's wrong? 
She was repenting, giving her life to Jesus. I'm thankful she finally did. No, she came up and she whispered in my ear, I could just said, who's Jesus? And so it's like a window opened that big, tiny little window. You know what was happening on Sunday? After church, we were supposed to take her over to the Sayonara party at 3 o'clock, and at 5 o'clock she's on a bus and out of here. Who is Jesus? So quickly, <laughs> Cheryl tells Kathy Pittis, who says, come over, my mom's Japanese, she can translate, Rick can tell her the gospel. Great. So we drive over to the Pittis's right after church. And I'm thinking, who is Jesus in five minutes or less? To someone who doesn't speak my language and has never heard of him before. No cultural context, no idea, nothing at all. We sit down and I'm just, my mind is racing. I mean, I've been in ministry a long time. I should be able to tell someone who is Jesus. I started out a long time ago in Bethlehem. A baby was born. And, and Kathy's mom is translating. I don't even know what she's saying. I mean, I think half of what she was saying is, never mind what he's saying. Let me just tell you something really simple about Jesus. But I'm trying to bring out, and I'm talking about the prophets. I'm, I'm saying, you know, these people, 700 years ago, 1,000 years ago, talked about this person who would be born in this place, and these things would happen, and there's no way they could have known. And, and then he was born in this place, and these things started to happen. And I got to the point where I'm talking through Kathy's mom to Iko, and I said, and he died to pay the price for our sins, and he rose from the dead. And she goes like this. She's listen- I watch her listening in Japanese. She goes, she goes, and then she said something in Japanese, and Kathy's mom said, she says she doesn't understand. We told her a little more and then we had to get on to the Sayonara party and the story has no ending for you tonight. I can't say that we converted her in five minutes. You know why? Because I don't think we're meant to be so brief. And it was a stark reminder to me that God has put us, each one, in long-term relationships with people so we can tell them who Jesus is. And it is not something that happens on a Sunday morning in one hour of teaching. It is not something that happens in five minutes on the Pittis' couch talking to a Japanese exchange student. It is something that is shared in a lifetime. And we have, all of us, long-term relationships to talk about Jesus. Please don't allow anyone you know to look at you on their deathbed and say, Who is Jesus? It broke my heart to send Iko away. I'm like, Lord, why couldn't we have had her just one more week? At least give me a week, Lord. Who is he? In Ephesus, man, Paul took the time to take them through the Scriptures. Day and night for a period of three years. He loved Ephesus. They loved him. To to, to Ephesus, Paul was much more than apostle evangelist. He was apostle pastor. He settled. He poured his heart out to them. Ephesus as a city would also know other great saints. Would be blessed by the presence of Apollos. Priscilla and Aquila, they all ministered in Ephesus in between Paul's second and third missionary journeys. Timothy would end up as pastor of Ephesus. 
Young Pastor Tim, protege of Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul refers to him being there and pastoring Ephesus. Irenaeus tells us that John and Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus, spent their final years in Ephesus. Remember on the cross, Jesus looked down and He saw Mary and in the inimitable Jesus style, as He is dying and suffering for the sins of the world, He sees His earthly mother and wants to make sure she's taken care of. And He looks at her and He says to her, Woman, behold your son. And He looks at John. And then He says to John, Behold your mother. And the Bible tells us, John 19.27, From that hour, the disciple took her to his own. That is, He took her under His wing. He took her under His covering. He would provide for her. He would look out for her. He would take care of her the rest of His life and ministry. And so if John ended up in Ephesus, so Mary ended up in Ephesus. And tradition tells us that to this day, both of the bodies of John and Mary are buried in Ephesus. You know what else is buried in Ephesus? (laughs) 75% of Ephesus is buried. Only 25% of the old ancient city has even been excavated. The church that was once so strong in Ephesus was buried there. There's no church of Ephesus today. I told you when we studied Corinth, the Corinthian letters, there's still a church in Corinth that traces back 2,000 years. There have always been believers in Corinth. There have not always been believers in Ephesus. Just archaeological ruins now. You can see aspects of it. Now, I'm told, I haven't been there yet, but I'm told it is beautiful to see. It's a remarkable spot. And yet you're still only able to see 25% of the entire city. What happened to Ephesus? Well, in 262 AD, the Goths came along and they destroyed the temple of Diana and they razed the city to the ground. They sacked it. People still lived on there, survived. But eventually the natural harbor on the Aegean Sea that was such a a draw to Ephesus, it filled with silt, clogged up, and it became unusable. And so people began to leave Ephesus in droves. By the 10th century, the city was completely abandoned. And so it became something for the archaeologists. You know, it began to fall into ruin. It's remarkable because the temple of Diana that I mentioned before was the fame of Ephesus. It was huge. And there, in fact, the temple of Diana, am I getting ahead of myself? I may be. i just tell you this, right now, was bigger than the Parthenon in Athens. Which everybody says, oh, the Parthenon, I've got to see the Parthenon. I've seen the Parthenon. Big deal! You know, I like the Bridge Christian Fellowship building better. But... But the Temple of Diana was massive. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And there in Ephesus was a 50,000 seat theater. It was in that theater that, that Paul would make his defense. It was in that theater that the people started shouting, Diana, the Temple of Diana. They started to shout, the goddess Diana, over and over and over. In fact, in the book of Acts we're told they went on for two hours shouting to Diana to drown out these teachers of this cult, this Christian thing. Diana's temple was huge. The theater was there. It was a center of culture and and Artemis worship. And as I said, all that remains today of the temple of Diana is an old rusty sign 
that describes it and has a little picture. And there are a few pillars crudely put up on uh, concrete blocks. That's it. Ephesus is in the ground. But this letter, this letter was written to take people into the heavenlies. What happened to the church 30 years after this letter? In the mid to late 90s, Jesus himself sent a very personal letter to the church at Ephesus by way of the Apostle John. And he wrote to them, Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Ephesus, even in Jesus' letter, we realize the church there was the bastion of faithful, sound doctrine. Man, they called out the heresies. They did not tolerate heretical teachings. They were solid in the Word. And Jesus says, that's great. But where's the love? You've forgotten about the love. And Jesus' prescription to them, His warning is, if you don't repent... I'm going to take the lampstand. The lampstand, the Holy Spirit. I will remove my spirit from this church if there's no love there. Brothers and sisters, we can be the most doctrinally sound church in the Northwest, but if we have no love, we will lose the Spirit of God. Oh, oh, not from individual believers. See, He's not going to rip Himself out of you. But I do believe the corporate presence of the Spirit is at times removed from a church that refuses the Word of God, and the love of God. I believe that's what happened to Ephesus. Again, Irenaeus comes along. He was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. And Irenaeus tells us that old John spent the final years of his life in Ephesus fighting against heresy. Nice retirement. You know, that's how John ended out his life. Boiled alive in oil, and that didn't kill him, so he was sent out to an island, the Isle of Patmos. Let's just shut him up out there. Then he gets the revelation of Jesus Christ. And ends up back in Ephesus, and he still has to be fighting heresies until his dying day. Because... You can have the greatest doctrinal stance and perseverance for truth, but if you love, if you lose the love of Jesus, the lights go out. And that's important to understand because the Spirit inspired Paul to use the verb and the noun forms of love 19 times in this short epistle. Which, compared to all of his letters, that's one-sixth of all of his letters combined, Paul talks about love to the church at Ephesus. It was already on the Spirit's mind. Don't lose your love. Don't lose your love. And by the way, the very end of this letter, the very last verse, listen to what Paul writes, Ephesians 6.24, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. For all the doctrine, it must be wrapped in love. We don't know much more about the church of Ephesus, but God has preserved this letter. Robinson said it's the crown of St. Paul's teachings. O'Brien said the letter has not only had a significant impact on the lives of men and women past, to a world that seems to have lost all sense of direction and a society that for all its great achievements is in a mess, the divine analysis of the human predicament along with God's gracious and comprehensive salvation ultimately provides for the only hope for the world that stands under divine judgment.
a heavenly prescription for a very earthly world. Another uh, commentator by the name of Snodgrass, <laughs> I like this quote though, he said, the understanding of the gospel in, the, in Ephesians challenges and redefines the superficial understanding of the gospel so prevalent in our day. That alone to me is a great reason to study this book. So in this letter, the Spirit reminds us of our blessings in the Epiranios, the, the heavenlies. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Blessed be, He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Note that, three blessings. The first one, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is the blessed one. Every single time in the New Testament the word blessed is used, it is referring to God. He is the blessed. He is the eulogetos in the Greek. The, the Hebrew uh, equivalent is the barakah. Barakah. It always speaks of God as the blessed. If you go back to the days just before Jesus, old Zacharias knew that. He learned that the hard way. That God is the blessed one. He was met, visited by Gabriel in the temple when Zacharias was in there lighting the incense, praying for the people, and I think perhaps praying for himself and his wife, for they were childless. And the angel Gabriel shows up and says, Zacharias, your prayers have been answered. Lizzie's going to have a baby. And Zach is like, Now? I prayed that like 40 years ago. What are you talking about? No, she's going to have a baby. And Zacharias is doubtful. And Gabriel says, well, just to prove it to you, you're not going to talk anymore until the baby's born. He goes dumb. Comes out of the temple. People are waiting for a word from Zacharias as he's just prayed for the people. And he comes out and he can't speak. And they're like, whoa, something happened. Zach just got messed up. And he didn't speak for nine months because he doubted. And when they told him, hey, your son's born and, 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 and we want to name him Zacharias after you. What say you, Zacharias? And he calls for a tablet. And so they hand him the, the uh, I think it was the iPad 001. They hand him a tablet and he scrawls on it, his name is John. Because see, that's what Gabriel said, you are to name this boy. That's what Gabriel told Elizabeth. Elizabeth wanted to name him John. Nobody else did. Zacharias says, no, no. His name is John. And the moment he wrote that, Luke 164, his mouth was opened. And his tongue loosed and he began to speak in praise to God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Barakah! He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people. And He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, His servant. And Zacharias is now prophesying Jesus. First things out of His mouth. Blessed be God and here comes Jesus. And He's yet to say anything about His son John. Amazing. And when that horn of salvation silently Himself stood before the accusatory high priest Caiaphas... The high priest pressed him. Mark 14.61 Are you the Christ, the Son of the Barakah? The Blessed One. Sad. The high priest's language was right. His heart was so wrong. Jesus said, I am. 
And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Because He is the Son of the Barakah, the Blessed One. God is the Blessed One. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And those are the only places in the New Testament where you hear the Barakah outside of Paul. So three places, Luke 1, Mark 14, and 1 Peter 1 are the three uses of Barakah in the New Testament. And then Paul will use the word five times in his letters. I won't read them all to you. You can jot this down. It's Romans 1.25 and Romans 9.5. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31. Those four times and then right here where Paul says, Blessed, Barakah, Eulogetos in the Greek, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. So God is the blessed one, first blessing. Secondly, every spiritual blessing is God's to give. Because the blessing comes from the blessed one. And He's the one who brings them. You are not going to get, I will not receive any spiritual blessing any other way than from God. There's no such thing as spiritual blessing that is, hasn't been given from the blessed one. You can't get it. You can play at it. You can pretend. You can dive into a cult or some strange heresy and think that you are spiritually blessed. You're not. The only spiritual blessings that come from the heavenlies come from the blessed one, God Himself. And literally, spiritual blessings, note this, it's two words put together. It's pneumatikos eulogia. And it should be specifically or literally translated, every good thing pertaining to the Spirit. Spiritual blessings are all good things pertaining to the Spirit. So you might say, oh, so so spiritual gifts? Yes. So um, spiritual powers? Absolutely. Spiritual positions, like ministries? Absolutely. Gifts, powers, ministries, every spiritual blessing is God's to give. And thirdly, every spiritual blessing is ours to receive. He's the blessed one who gives every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies to those who are blessed, and that's us. That's people in Christ who have been blessed by the blessed one. But listen carefully. Don't limit the blessing. Some people don't get the blessing at all because they're looking at it from some other perspective. They're trying to get it from some other God or some other religion or some other belief system and they're not going to get any spiritual blessing. Others take the spiritual blessings of God and they limit those blessings to gifts, effects, and ministries. I want all the spiritual blessings. Hey, every spiritual blessing, everything pertaining to the Spirit... His Spirit. What does that mean? It means God Himself. The greatest spiritual blessing you will ever receive in your life is God Himself. It's not presence, as in P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, like Christmas morning. It's presence. 
The presence of God. That is the greatest of all spiritual blessings. And though He gives powers and effects and ministries, He gives gifts, and they're all for the body, and they're all for the witness of the church and the world, and they are to be used and received joyfully, they are not the limit of the spiritual blessings. God is the spiritual blessing. His Spirit. His very presence. That's the real blessing. We jump past knowing Him to all the things that we can do by His power. While He's standing there saying, let's, let's be together. Let's, let's do this together. I know it's okay, God, I can speak in tongues now, so you're fine. You, I got it. I can heal now. I've been raised up as a pastor now. I no longer need you, Lord. And the issue is His presence. He said to Moses, Exodus 33:14, "My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest." And I love Moses' response. If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. I'm not going if you don't go. So I'm glad you're going. The spiritual blessings in the heavenlies are nothing if not about being with Jesus if they're not about the presence of the Lord. So back to my phone conversation with with this person and trying to convey that this person is saved and, and, and assure that salvation. And I began asking questions. Tell me about your relationship with Jesus. Tell me about what you know of Jesus. And the first thing out of this person's mouth, I've always loved Jesus. Far back as I can remember, you know, this person is in the same place that I have been. And maybe you've been. Some of us have gone to church all our lives and we've always kind of believed. You know, I, I don't know, I can't remember a time that I didn't believe. Some of you can. Some of you had a moment where it switched into, oh, and you had that glorious heavenly revelation. For me, it was just, I grew up with it. Now, I had heavenly revelation and a realization that came later. But I always believe I always loved Jesus and this person said that I've always loved Jesus but I haven't heard his voice seen a vision dreamed a dream have I missed something let me tell you something don't overthink heavenly visions don't overthink it don't stress out about it or worry about it do you love Jesus do you trust Jesus well Rick that's so simple I know right it's supposed to be And the dreams and the visions and all the spiritual things that we talk about, man, that is part of the deal. God is going to pour that out. He uses those things. But it's my love for Him recognizing His love for me. Some think because they've never had an ecstatic experience that they're less loved. Or maybe not even saved. Not true. I've loved Jesus all my life. The moment I heard that, I had this person. (laughs) Hey, wait a minute. I'm going to quote you to you. I've loved Jesus all my life. How can you say that and not be one of His? How can you love Him so much and not be chosen of Him and loved by Him and saved by Him? That's what He's looking for. Don't forget your first love. That's the basis for all of this. And it turns out Ephesians is deeply personal. Though, though it's not so much personal between Paul and the people of Ephesus, 
Some have even surmised that the reason why there's not a whole lot of people called out is because Paul knew them so well. And he didn't want to talk about this guy or that girl or or this person because he knew all of them way too well, so he just kind of stepped back from that. But in spite of all that, the letter is incredibly personal. The phrases in Christ, in whom, and in him, all referring to Jesus, appear 11 times in this paragraph. Alone. This is all about those who are in Jesus. This is all about that intimate relationship that we have in Christ, in whom we are saved, in Him. And it signifies to me that all these spiritual blessings, they are for those who trust Him and and for those who realize this is something I can't do, but He can. I can't control it. He can And let me tell you one more thing. He knows you need a heavenly vision. He knows that. He knows we need some confirmation. He understands that that all of us come to Him and at some moment we, we just need to know, Lord, we need to see. We need a heavenly vision. Hey, the Bible says where there is no vision, the people perish. Proverbs 29, 18. And so He's given us one. Right here. He has given us heavenly vision after heavenly vision after heavenly vision in His Word so that you can see, so that you can have a window open into the heavenly places and have that vision. Exodus chapter 24, one of the first times we we start to see a vision. Moses went up with Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel. Oh, they saw God, the God of Israel, and under His feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Sounds like the the sea of glass before the throne, doesn't it? So we start to get a heavenly vision. God peels back the curtain slightly. Isaiah chapter 6, I saw the Lord seated on the throne and the train of His robe was about the whole temple. And Isaiah begins to describe this fantastic heavenly scene. Why? So that we can have a heavenly vision. And we have one. I think about Ezekiel. Man, you want to get some wild heaven. Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10, read about that. Spinning wheels and and cherubim and four-faced creatures and whoa, heavenly vision. Why is that in the Bible? Because God knows we need to see a bit of heaven. Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days comes up to the Father in heaven. Jesus is there, heavenly vision. Revelation chapters 4 and 5, Revelation 19, 20, 21 and 22. If you need a heavenly vision, there you go. He has provided that for us. He's given us the vision. And I'm going on about this because that is, I believe, part of the point of the letter to the Ephesians. To remind us that we receive the blessing of the blessed one to infinity and beyond the heavenly vision. Verse 4. Just a couple more verses and we'll be done tonight. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Note that He chose us. Now we've been over this. We went over this in depth in Romans. We talked about this whole issue of God's choosing and an election and people say, well, is that predestination or do I have free will? And I always say, yes. God predestined because He knew that you were going to choose. 
He does not take away your free will, but He chooses you knowing you're going to choose Him. In other words, and I, I like to put it this way, He knew we'd choose Him, so He chose us before we chose Him, confirming our choice. Simple, right? He's God. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by some of the things that bind us. So He knows what you're going to do. And because He knew that you were going to choose Him, He chose you to choose Him. Because He knew that you would follow Him, He said, I am going to confirm that faith, I'm going to secure that faith, and I'm going to see it through to the end because they're going to choose Me. So He chose us before the foundation of the world, before it all began. Romans 8.29 For those whom He foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so we would be the, He would be the firstborn among many. These whom he, whom he predestined, He called, and these He called. He justified, and these He justified. He glorified. And by the way, He had to do it that way. He had to take us through that entire process. Why? To make us, as Paul writes, holy and blameless before Him. He chose us to work on us that we would be holy and blameless. Recipients of all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. By the way, speaking of all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, Ephesus was called, known as the Bank of Asia Minor. This was where the wealthy kept their money. This was kind of the stronghold of finances throughout Asia. It was literally a depository of the rich and famous. Well, remember from Sunday... I'm a slave with an inheritance. I'm an infinitillionaire. And so are you. I want us to start using that word from time to time. Nice to meet you. Rick Crawford, infinitillionaire. I can say it. People are like, what? I have an inheritance in the heavens. Eternal. Wealth beyond measure. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.18, later in this chapter, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And Paul bounces off, kind of plays off this bank of Ephesus. Verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. So now we've been adopted in His sons. Remember we ended Colossians as slaves. Slaves with an inheritance. Slaves of the Lord Christ. Well now, guess what? We're sons. And because we're sons, we have this marvelous inheritance we've been adopted in. Now, I want to say this quickly. There is something every adopted child should know. I've told my three... And it's something I think every parent who's ever adopted a child and every child who's ever been a child of adoption should understand, listen, get this, you were chosen. You were chosen. I have said to Anna Marie, Naomi, and David many times, we chose you. We chose you. Out of all the others, out of all the choices we could have had, to adopt in this world, we cho- I didn't choose my other three. They just showed up. And I was stuck with them. Uh, no, I'm kidding. We always wanted children. And with each one of my biological kids, the first three, as they came along, we praised the Lord and we were thankful for them and we loved them. But we chose Anna Marie. And we chose Naomi and we chose David. My friends, you've been adopted. What does that mean? You were chosen. 
And it's not about predestination. It's about God's choice of me. Me. It's not just that I chose God. It's not just that I love Him. He chose me. And called me His Son. Man, that's just incredible. And some biological kids aren't always chosen. Some come as surprises. Some are unexpected. Some, tragically, are unwanted by human parents. And some of you have experienced that with parents. You have felt unwanted by a mother, by a father. Guess what? God chose you. He chose you. Man, that leaps and bounds way beyond anything my biological parents ever did. Good or bad. I have been chosen by God. I am a child of adoption. Before I chose to accept my adoption, He chose me. Why did He do that? Well, because if He just created you to be a son or daughter of God, would you know that He wanted you? Could you be sure? Well, you can be sure because He chose you out of this world. Last thing, last verse. He didn't just do it for you. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. The Beloved, Jesus Christ. And it is all to the praise of His grace. The praise of the glory of His grace. And note this, three times in Paul's opening salvo here, he uses this phrase, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. He uses it here in verse 6. He uses it in verse 12. Where he says, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. He uses it in verse 14, finishing out this section, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's possession to the praise of His glory. He loves us. He chose us. (laughs) But it turns out it's not about us. It's to the praise of His glory. Glory. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 8. We'll end right here. Paul writes, To me the least of all the saints, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies. The result of what God has done by choosing you, adopting me, the result of all of that in the church will be a glorious shout of Barukah. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Eulogetos. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We are wonderfully, gloriously caught up in a vast eternal revelation of the grace of God to the praise of His glory. That's why He chose us. That's why we're His children. That the rulers, the authorities, the angels in the heavenly places might know the grace of God to infinity and beyond.